We are starting, though, talking about health care. And an announcement earlier today, the B.C. government is reactivating the emergency operations centres in health authorities as more pressure builds in B.C.'s health care system. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Global News journalist Richard Zussman. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Jill, thanks for having me. You were at the announcement earlier today from the health minister, Adrian Dix. What did we learn? Yeah, so what's happening here is starting on Monday, these emergency operations centers will be reactivated. And we've seen this done uh, in the pandemic as well as in other uh, pressure points in the system, uh, including weather events. Uh, And so what this means is the health authorities and the hospitals have the ability to activate their surge sites. So if you go into the hospital, you may get your service in an area that's not typical. So we see that in solariums or potentially in hallways or uh, cafeteria spaces, using those surge spaces. Because in some hospitals, we're already seeing the system above capacity. In others, the province is anticipating we could get there. So we're talking some of the big hospitals here, uh, Surrey Memorial Hospital. We're talking about Royal Inland and Kamloops. We're talking about BC Children's, where we've already seen additional space activated. Uh, The reason for this is because January is always the toughest month on the hospital system. We often see uh, surge beds put in place in January. On top of that, we have uh, covid Fears of COVID cases going up due to this new subvariant nicknamed the Kraken. Uh, we're seeing an increase in absenteeism for staff. So all of that is putting pressure. The other thing the emergency operations centers allow the hospitals and health authorities to do is greater assessment of needs of those who come into the hospital. So they may uh, send people home uh, sooner than normal, but only at a point where they believe they can receive the care they need from home. Uh, It also allows them to move resources around the hospitals as well. What is not happening at this point, Joe, is a cancellation of surgeries. But the fear is if we see those surges in absenteeism, as in, you know, those who are performing the surgeries or assisting to perform the surgeries can't come to work, then it may be inevitable that there may have to be some postponements. All right. And that was something I'm I'm glad you touched on that because I'm sure people will hear this and wonder about the surgery schedule as well as elective surgeries. So at this point, no cancellations of those at any surgery at this point that's been scheduled. Yeah. And, and the important word there is at this point, because we know that there will be staff who are sick and the province has amped up its surgeries to the point where we were breaking records in the fall. More surgeries done than ever before. But we're hitting a critical juncture here with already pressure points. We historically see people, you know, not have surgeries done in mid to late December because of the holidays. And instead, they're scheduled at this time of year in January. And that is in part one of the pressure points is we have more surgeries being done now uh, than typically always in January. So that's a challenge. The other thing that people may be thinking when they're listening to this is, oh, the hospitals are in such crisis, I shouldn't go. If you are not feeling well, if you need medical help, go seek it. Go to your doctor. Go to the urgent primary care center. Go to the emergency room. In some cases, it may be more beneficial to do a virtual appointment to keep yourself out of that healthcare setting. But the system is not stopping here, Jill. It is forging ahead, and people that feel they need treatment need to get it because if you wait, it compounds the issue. And we've seen some of those challenges already emerging, and the province is worried that more and more of that could happen. So if you need essential health care, go and get it in this province. And did the health minister look at it by region or as far as putting these in place in the health care system? Is it generally across the board or are there certain areas or parts of the system where they're seeing even more of the strain? Yeah, so I mentioned some of those key hospitals where we're already seeing the substantial pressure points, but this is largely system-wide. But Metro Vancouver is feeling the pressure. These are those big hospitals that people rely on where we're seeing these emergency operation centers in place. But Surrey Memorial continues to be one uh, that the minister is acutely um, observing. Uh, Children's Hospital is one where we've seen this pressure point uh, since November 
So uh, this is in those really busy hospitals where we see the combination of people coming into emergency. We see people coming in for consultations, for surgeries, for cancer treatment, where we see lots of activity happening with lots of staff. But because of all these compounding issues, that's where we're really seeing the pressure points. And I'm guessing that it will depend on what things look like as we get further into January and into February. Yeah. But is there a timeline as far as how long that the, the emergency operations centre is going to stay in place? A minimum of six weeks. Uh, it could be extended, but we also know the hope, based on the current numbers, is that maybe we've peaked with flu season. It came early, it came hard, but we still have high levels of vaccination and there may be some confidence that the flu cases are waning. We're still seeing some pressure from RSV, but again, the hope is maybe the worst is behind us. The COVID variant is the wild card here. We don't know the severity, we don't know um, how quick the spread is going. We're testing so little that that becomes very, very challenging uh, to deal with that issue. So, uh, it's being watched very closely, but the minimum now is six weeks, Jill, and the hope is that that's enough time uh, to keep the system in a position where it can still function. And did the minister talk then about the numbers of people in hospital with either RSV or, or COVID or, or those numbers, and if those are a concern? He did, and they are, and they're in my phone, and I'm talking on my phone right now. So I can't look at the exact numbers, but I'm sure you will hear them through the day on the news. Yes, he talked about the cases. Yes, they are concerning. Uh, some of the numbers we saw actually saw a drop-off at hospital admissions uh, over that week of Christmas time. But the big thing that people are waiting for is to catch up here in January. And historically, we've seen this for all respiratory illness that we see an easing in December, but then as people gather close together or celebrate the holidays, we see those cases go back up in early January. So, uh, yes, the minister provided those numbers. Uh, they will be updated on my web store. You will hear them all day on NW, I promise. I just don't have them because they are in my phone. <laughs> and Absolutely. I can't remember them. I understand. Um, but, but, I, but, I, but I know it is, I know it is an issue uh, that the minister is concerned about, and he, and he has provided those numbers in terms of what sort of pressure we're seeing. And, and in some cases, and, and Keith Baldry will go into this, I think, tonight in the news hour, uh, the hospitals where we're already over 100% capacity. Like, we're already system-wide over our surge numbers in terms of base beds. We're already into those surge beds. And, yes, hospital to hospital, it, uh, it matters. Uh, but in many hospitals, we're already over that 100% threshold. And that's why we're seeing people treated in different areas of the hospital. Yes, they're still receiving world-class care from these hospitals. They are still getting access to all the machines and the doctors and the nurses. But... There's so much pressure that these nurses are spread thin, the doctors are spread thin, the space is spread thin, and add on top of that people who are out sick. And, and this is why we're, we've hit this point uh, here with the announcement this morning. All right. Richard, as always, thanks so much for joining us and for breaking down this announcement today. Appreciate it. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. We are going to take a look now at a judgment. It comes from the BC Court of Appeal, and it has to do with an arrest and with a search and with an abandoned backpack. And joining us to talk more about this is Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. I, I won't go through the entire judgment because it is kind of a lengthy one, but just to, to give people an idea of what we're talking about, again, this is in the Court of Appeal for BC, and I'll just do briefly talk about the, the beginning of these reasons, kind of lay out the case saying James Wilkinson and another man were walking late one night on a street in Duncan, BC. He was wearing a backpack, plainclothes police officers on patrol observed them, and they concluded that the two were acting suspiciously when and the men suddenly ran in the opposite direction into a vacant lot. The officers pursued them on foot. Mr. Wilkinson was eventually detained. The police recovered a backpack, which had been discarded by Mr. Wilkinson during the pursuit. A search of that backpack revealed that it contained, uh, contained a quantity of illicit drugs, among other things. He was then later convicted on two counts of possession of a controlled substance for the purpose of trafficking and one count of possession of a controlled substance. He is a 
appealing those convictions. It then goes on to say the appeal raises issues of arbitrary detention, the unreasonable search and seizure of the backpack, and whether there was a timely compliance with the uh, informational component. Let's talk a bit about this. So when you look at this decision and this appeal, what was your take on it? Oh, I uh, I don't know that I like the sort of impact that I see this appeal having on people. Um, essentially, the Court of Appeal said that if you run from the police, that's effectively enough grounds for the police to uh, stop you and detain you for the purposes of an investigation to as to why you ran from the police. Um, and if you happen to lose or drop or throw away your backpack or any belongings while you are running from the police, then those are considered to be abandoned and the police have the right to take them and search them and anything that's found in them can then be held against you. And and what is the issue? What, what kind of, why does that not sit, sit well with you? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason is really the the sort of impact that this is going to have on marginalized populations, um, especially people who are unhoused and underhoused, who have their belongings um, stored in public or semi-public places. Um, People who leave, you know, you might stash your backpack or your your cart of goods, your bags of goods um, in a secret location for you. But if a police officer happens upon that, they can effectively consider that to be abandoned and go through your belongings and take them from you. So it really authorizes a huge, wide-ranging police authority to interfere with people's personal belongings. Is it different, though, when we're talking about, say, if we're talking about an encampment or somebody who is living in a tent? Is it different that somebody maybe leaves that tent for an hour to go do something and leaves their things there, as opposed to somebody who is actively running from a police officer and tossing off a backpack? So the court in this case actually didn't draw a distinction as a result of the running because the officer's evidence was they they just believed the backpack to be abandoned. They didn't associate the backpack to criminal activity simply because it was discarded while the person was running. And that's where I, I find the concerning aspect of this as far as its potential implication. Because if you came across a tent alone in a park, you might say to yourself as a police officer, oh, this must be abandoned, even though somebody's only left it for an hour. So it puts a big burden on people who have very few rights vis-a-vis the police to sort of pack everything up and take it with you under the potential that the police may consider it to be abandoned and interfere with it or search it. Uh, In the ruling as well, one of the lines, it says, in terms of whether the search and seizure were unreasonable, he concluded that Mr. Wilkinson abandoned the backpack in an area owned by a third party unknown to him while running away from police, and therefore there was no violation of the charter as a result of the search of the backpack. So does that draw a distinction, though, if he had, say, run into his home or or if he lived nearby, if he ran into his yard and discarded the backpack in his yard, would that be different than throwing it in an empty lot? Yes, absolutely. If you just if you put something in your yard, that's your property. Nobody can enter your property and search it without uh, lawful authority. And if something is in your property, it's not considered abandoned unless it's put outside the property for collection. And the, the court refers to a case from the Supreme Court of Canada that found that garbage that's placed on the street for collection, that's abandoned. But if you keep your garbage can inside your property, inside your fence line, it's not abandoned until it's put out onto the street. And it would also apply, you know, if you put it in a property of a friend or family member, um, you you place your belongings on their property because you have a relationship um, to that individual, you may have an expectation of privacy on their property as well. Right. Okay. So definitely a difference there. So, and is it, do you think that, that, there is enough of a distinction there, though, and that with the judge saying because this was a vacant lot or because this was a part of Duncan that that had no connection to this person, that's why it was considered abandoned? Uh, for me, it's not enough of a distinction um, because of, again, the impact that it can have on marginalized individuals who are, are facing issues with homelessness or, or access to, to private spaces. Um, and, I mean, obviously, if a case like that comes before the court, the court may have the opportunity to reconsider this. But what's known to the police at the time is really what's considered in assessing the sort of reasonableness of their opinion that the backpack was abandoned and the uh, reasonableness of any expectation 
invasion of privacy um, in a location. So I, I, I'll cautiously await to see how this judgment is applied, but I'm not very optimistic for rights holders um, in this province. And and looking at the wording of this as well, that, that this was, again, it was plainclothes officers who observed these two individuals and concluded that they were acting suspiciously. Uh, and that's when and they ran and this happened again. Different from, I'm remembering many, many years ago, uh, very, very pre-pandemic, when people were going to the downtown beaches, I believe it was to watch the fireworks, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of concerns because in some cases police are, were searching bags and they were... They were taking alcohol. Granted, you weren't allowed to be taking alcohol to the beach, but they were confiscating alcohol from people to cut down on that. And there were a lot of questions at that time as to, well, why on earth would you be searching a bag? Because I haven't done anything that's suspicious. I'm not doing anything that would suggest I'm about to break the law. Maybe I'm going to a friend's house. Uh, Does this talk to that as well in that police need a reason to search a bag, whether it's on your person or you've dropped it to the ground, there needs to be some reason why there would be that search in the first place. Yes, any search of anything that may have some sort of privacy interest associated to it, so the contents of a bag um, or your car or your home or your pockets, has to have some basis in law. Um, But police have a lot of authority to conduct searches. If you're arrested, they can search you incident to that arrest. If you're detained, they can do a pat-down search for weapons, for officer safety reasons, Um, and of course they can get search warrants, and there are a number of provisions of both federal and provincial legislation that authorize searches on uh, something less than a reasonable and probable ground standard and without warrant, including searches that are authorized under BC's Cannabis Act, for example. Right. And does it come down to, though, in this case, had the and it doesn't unless I miss that the part of the judgment. But other than saying that they were acting suspiciously, I didn't see where it went into any great detail on what it was they were doing that was deemed suspicious. But had these two individuals just been walking late at night that you would think I, I imagine that they would have been just walking and this wouldn't have become an issue. Yes, I mean, what was considered suspicious is that they were looking around and they were dressed in all black and they were in a high crime area. Um, But the reason that the police were able to lawfully detain Mr. Wilkinson had to do with the fact that he, when he saw the police, started to run. And the court cited that as the, the, the sort of critical point at which the officers went from not having the right to interfere with their movement to then being able to say, I have a suspicion that something's going on here and I can detain him to investigate that suspicion. All right. Okay. And and now I have found that part too. So yes, he started to run. They called out, stop police. And then it says that he ran, tripped over a fence, fell down. And when they caught up or when he came back, that's when he came back and no longer had the backpack. And and then the search took place, I imagine, a short time after that. Yes. One officer went and got the backpack while the other officer dealt with Mr. Wilkinson directly. So do you see this, the potential for this, if it's not challenged to the higher court? Do you see that this could become an issue, maybe not in a scenario specifically like this, but in other scenarios, like you said, where we're talking about people who are perhaps more marginal or or more vulnerable? Yes, absolutely. And we even saw an example of that in a very recent Supreme Court of Canada case where a a group of individuals were in a backyard um, in Toronto. Uh, They were people of colour. The police sort of poked their heads over the fence and started asking them what they were doing there and why they were in the backyard. And one of them took off and ran. And the Supreme Court of Canada found that that detention um, was not lawful. So there may be something about this case that's at odds with the recent Supreme Court of Canada case authority that allows the Supreme Court to reconsider it, but also potentially allows lawyers in defending clients who have had their rights violated by police for not having a legitimate basis to stop them and detain them to rely on that to sort of distinguish the circumstances here where there doesn't appear to have been um, any potential that there was sort of racial bias or, or racial motivation that led to the police interference with their liberties. Does it matter, do you think, though, and if we look at this as one individual case, generally speaking, people uh, don't run around throwing their backpacks off and, and, and leaving them in a vacant lot. I mean, if you, if you look at this, it, it appears that this guy threw the backpack off because he knew there was stuff in the backpack that was going to get him in trouble. 
I mean, that's certainly the inference that uh, you can draw from the case. But, I mean, he did also trip over a fence, so maybe the backpack just fell off when he fell over. Um, And, of course, at the time that the backpack was searched and at the time that it was um, considered to be abandoned, nobody knew, other than Mr. Wilkinson, what the contents of the backpack were. So uh, the courts have said you can't rely on um, the existence of fruits of a search to justify the search retroactively. Right. Even though if all there was in there was, say, uh, an apple and a book, he probably wouldn't have thrown it away. Probably not. But uh, maybe. I don't know. An apple and a book is a lot easier to part with than perhaps something as valuable as what was in his backpack. (laughs) Uh, Do you think a case like this has uh, the merits or there's a potential here that it could go to the Supreme Court of Canada? There's absolutely a potential for a case like this to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, particularly because of um, the way that the trial judge's finding on the detention was overturned, the way that this does sort of seem to be at odds with a recent Supreme Court of Canada case. There's enough here that an argument could be made that the Supreme Court of Canada should consider um, the case and the circumstances and give some comment and direction to trial judges throughout the country about how to deal with abandoned property in the context of somebody who's running from police. All right. It's an interesting ruling for sure. Kyla, thank you so much. As always, great to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. We have talked a fair bit about food prices, what they looked like in 2022, and already just a few days into 2023, there are a lot of concerns being raised about the price of some meats, of poultry, and people wondering what it is going to look like as we move forward. Well, Sylvain Charlebois is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and he joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Sylvain, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Let's talk a bit about food prices. And specifically, uh, people have been sharing photographs of chicken and certain types (laughs) of chicken and uh, very expensive price tags. Is this avian flu? Why are we seeing this? Well, I mean, it's a mixture of different things. I think it's mostly about confusion uh, because... the, the one picture that uh, went viral there on social media, uh, it was a picture of five uh, chicken, boneless, skinless chicken breasts free from antibiotics. And so that tends to cost way more. And so the price that we saw uh, on social media uh, was actually consistent with uh, what we've seen elsewhere, really. And so, uh, but I think it boils down to one thing. A lot of people are just frustrated and concerned about food prices. Uh, they're concerned about their own food security. And so this, this picture became this sort of lightning rod for, for many, many people. Right. And, and I guess what the picture didn't show, like you said, this was a high-end chicken package, which is still, I think, seems very expensive for people. But what it didn't show is there are still the family packs and the other parts of chicken or chicken packages that are probably more in line to what we've seen in the past. That's right. And I think what's, what's really important for, for, for consumers is, is to know exactly your pricing uh, before you show up at the grocery store. You should actually have an idea of how much you should be paying for like chicken in general. And so if you go to uh, the meat counter, and you see that thirty-six dollars, uh, you'll know uh, why and and how much more it is. And if it is too much, uh, just walk away. Uh, there's probably something, a substitute around in that same uh, store you can actually buy in lieu of of chicken, for example. So. I, people shouldn't despair, but I do understand why people are reacting this way, especially when when the food inflation rate in Canada has exceeded the general inflation rate for well over a year now. Right, and we've talked about this before. Poultry has been one of the areas where we've seen that increase. So I, I guess it's a good advice. So know what something should cost when going to the grocery store, but also factoring in it's going to cost more than it did last year. That That's right. Now... The thing about uh, BC, where you are, is that I suspect we are expecting poultry prices to 
continue to rise because of the avian flu. Right now, the avian flu is really impacting the valley and Alberta as well. And so we are expecting uh, more uh, supply-side pressures, uh, and you should see less poultry. Same for eggs. So if, if I were a British Columbian, I'd be very careful about poultry prices, uh, turkey, chicken, and, and eggs as well. All right. That doesn't fare well. I remember one of our conversations last year when we were talking about ways to save some money. And I do recall, I'm pretty sure you said one of the ideas was to make your own mayonnaise. But if the crust of eggs goes through the roof, <laughs> that's going to be difficult. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, the, the one thing you should also do uh, right now is not to be all that difficult. If, if you're into mayonnaise or you're looking to, to eat a certain product or or prepare a certain meal at home and, and something is too expensive and you're forced to walk away, well, try to figure out something else. Uh, I, I have some good news for you at the meat counter. Uh, if you're into pork, if you like pork, pork is the cheapest deal right now. I mean, pork prices are really incredibly affordable these days. Nobody's talking about it, but I can tell you, you can find some good deals. So if you like pork, if you eat pork, that, that should be your choice for the next little while. And why is that? Why are we seeing uh, kind of the deals right now when buying pork? There's too much supply. There's too much supply, and uh, farm gate prices uh, are, are, have been down for a while. So they have worked the, their way through the supply chain. It's, it's benefiting consumers right now. Even bacon is actually a little bit cheaper uh, right now. So I would take advantage of that. Oh, definitely. I would imagine, too. And if somebody is, if, if that is part of your diet and you want meat as part, that is part of your grocery bill, then that seems to make a lot of sense. If, you've, if you can do it, then why not swap out whatever it may be what you had before and uh, go for the, the pork products for some time? Exactly. So there's always an option out there. And, and of course, you always have access to uh, different uh, phone apps uh, like uh, Foodie Row, Flash Food, uh, Too Good to Go, those are all food rescuing apps allowing you to buy products that are about to expire uh, or they've been packaged uh, a few days ago. You can buy at a discount and some of, some of those discounts are pretty substantial uh, and I'm talking like 50, 60 percent. So who wouldn't want those kind of discounts these days? Yeah, I've heard so many stories of that, exactly, people saving a lot of money doing that. What about produce? Do we have any idea what we're looking at as far as going into 2023 and the price of, of fresher food, the fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables? It's, uh, it's hit and miss, actually. You know, it's, uh, it's not uh, necessarily... Um, uh, clear uh, and of course the dollar is the big one for for that category uh, we're watching the dollar very closely even with today's uh, job numbers uh i mean job numbers were pretty solid in canada and and the cane dollars down <laughs> so that's that shows how the american dollar is is way stronger and of course that's certainly a that's certainly bad news for importers and uh, of course in in british columbia uh, you guys do import a lot of produce during the winter months. So we're watching the cane dollar very, very closely. And Sylvan, I wanted to ask you as well, just kind of going back to those prices and those sticker shock tweets and shares on social media that, that people have been, been putting out there. Inevitably, when we see those, there are people that will respond saying, this is price gouging. Why are the grocery stores doing this to us? Doing this to us? Is that part of the equation here? Well, it's, uh, it, it, is, it is instinctive. Uh, the grocery store is, is our portal into uh, the wonderful world of, of food, uh, but, but, but the food industry is a complicated thing. Uh, it has many components to it, but the one component most people understand is the grocery store and people are quick to blame grocers. And when you look at financial statements, the evidence is just not there. The evidence that, that, that would suggest that, uh, that grocers are abusing is just not there. Uh, but I certainly understand why people are pointing 
fingers at grocers because of the past. I mean, we had the bread cartel story, and and also we've seen the the, the hero pay kerfuffle a few a few years ago during the pandemic, and and of course in December in Parliament in Ottawa, I was testifying uh, before the Standing Committee on Agriculture in relation to the food inflation investigation. CEOs. Uh, were asked to show up, they never did. Hmm. So uh, they actually, instead, they actually sent in their CFOs. So you can tell that, you know, there's some arrogance there. And and frankly, I think it's time for grocers to read the room a little bit. All right. So, Sylvain, always great to chat with you about this. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Take care. Well, as we know, there were firefights and burnt vehicles and chaos in some streets in Mexico yesterday. That after the operation to detain Ovidio Guzman, who is the son of imprisoned drug lord Joaquin Guzman, also known as El Chapo. That detention unleashed those firefights and some chaos on the streets. As you just heard in the news, some flights have been suspended while we wait and see what happens on the streets because of the Sinaloa drug cartel. We have been reaching out to Canadians, specifically British Columbians, who are in Mexico. And certainly a lot of people are spending what was supposed to be some relaxing vacation time in Mexico. Earlier today, I caught up with Daryl Wendland, who is a Chilliwack resident. He's been in Mexico for a few weeks now and was expected or was scheduled to come home soon. And here's how Daryl described things happening today. Oh, yeah, I got uh, about 35 minutes before I got to venture out into the uh, the wilderness here. What's the situation like there now? Right now, it seems to have gone back to just a normal lazy day here in Mazatlan. Uh, other than uh, from what I can tell, the airport is still closed to incoming and outgoing flights. I guess yesterday at Kulakan, uh the, the narcos were firing shots at the Aeromexico planes, but, you know, that's Mexico's national airline. So I guess that makes sense. Yikes. Well, and what was it like? I know you had mentioned yesterday as well, while this happened, and we, we learned that there were shots being fired at airplanes. Uh, when the order was given to people to shelter where you were or to, to stay where you were, what did you do? Um, well, I... I only found out because of social media. Uh, the the Mazatlan pages on Facebook, uh, there's a lot of misinformation on there. You have to kind of weed through uh, the, the, the jungle on what people are saying. Um, I was actually trying to catch a bus down to the, uh, the grocery store yesterday, and, you know, the buses here are very cheap, very efficient. So it, it's better to take those... But I had five buses whip by me on the uh, on the, the roadway. They weren't slowing down. They didn't stop. They were in a hurry to get somewhere. And I thought, oh, this is weird. So I asked one of the people that was at the bus stop with me, and she was a, a Mexican lady. Uh, problem with the communication, but she showed me something about uh, El Chapo's son. Hmm. I'm like, okay, well, if uh, if the government is is Toying with the cartels, things are going to get very bad. So I kind of made my way home. I was only a block, block and a half away from my condo here. And a whole bunch of people were running to the corner store. They're like, we need to get beer. Like, really? (laughs) Well, we're going to be cooped up for days, so we need to get beer. Well, okay. At least they're not making a run on toilet paper, right? (laughs) Yes. So... Uh, other than it's, I heard reports of uh, a shooting down in the Cerritos end of Mazatlan. Uh, that's like the, the northern tip of, of Mazatlan, which is kind of on the way to Kulakan. Kulakan is only 140 miles uh, away from here. So whether that was all people were panicking, a um, lot of disinformation out there. There's a fellow who passed away at a at a restaurant just around the corner from here. It was a cardiac event. It was very sad, but people were attributing that to, oh, the cartels shot somebody. Mm. So there's a lot of panic 
a lot of disinformation going out there. People are speculating and a lot of unease. And of course, this was all yesterday. It was all fresh. You know, when, when stuff is new, it's hard to get all the facts. Uh, it was a quiet night. I it was expecting maybe something would happen overnight, but nothing happened. I ventured out when uh, I shot that video for, for Global News last night. Uh, the avenue I was on is called Avenue Cameron Sabalo. It's a very busy road. It was deserted. I could stand in, in the middle of the, uh, the street. Uh, businesses were closed. There's three nightclubs on a, a one-block stretch, and it seems like every night they are competing with each other to see who's got the loudest music. Last night, dead quiet. Um, it was eerie. Uh, some of the, the convenience stores were locked down. They, they pretty much never closed. Um, a lot of restaurants. Uh, the La Catrina restaurant closed very early. They were only open for the, uh, the World Juniors hockey game. And then as soon as overtime was done, all right, you guys got to go. And and you kind of described there, and, and that video showed where you are in, in Mazatlan. How long have you been there at this point, Daryl? Uh, I arrived December the 11th. I should have been here December 10th, but Swoop in their infinite wisdom, Swoop Airlines, decided with no explanation to cut my vacation short by a day. Hmm. So, not too happy with Swoop at the moment, to tell you the truth. <laughs> No, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. And and when are you scheduled th- to come back to BC? January fourteenth. Right. And so, do you have concerns that this could potentially still be going on, or what kind of a, a sense of that are you getting? Uh, from what I hear, most of the violence has transferred over to Mexico City. El Chapo's oldest son—I I don't know what his proper name is—but they call him El Chapito. Um, he was the, he was transferred to Mexico city to a, a prison there. Now with the, uh, the trade summit coming up, we got president Biden, prime minister Trudeau and the Mexican president, they're going to have a little sit down chat and, you know, more of a photo op than anything else. Uh, but I think all of this is being generated because of that visit. Uh, the, the current sitting Mexican president actually had El Chapito captured. They, they took him into custody. This was back in 2019. And it went crazy down here. Uh, he ended up having to release him just to regain calm in the country. So when you got the, the three major leaders of North America coming together, I think he wants to, to put up a, it's more of an act, I guess. Uh, look, we're we're tough on crime. We're tough on the uh, the narcos down here. But I, I think as soon as that summit's over, uh, El Chapito's going to somehow get out of prison. He's going to go back to his day to day lives, and things will calm down. But in the in the very short term, things are quiet here in Mazatlan. In fact, I was able to venture out to the uh, the grocery store. The buses are running normally. That's a key indicator. If you can get on a bus, and I'd say the taco joints are open, but I don't think they ever close. Uh, Daryl, just going back to, to what you mentioned, the buses are running. That's a positive sign. You ventured out to the grocery store. So what sense are you, do you get the sense that kind of the worst is over, or, or what kind of sense do you have moving forward? I would call it it's uh, an uneasy calm. It might be the calm before the storm. could be nothing. At this point, nobody really knows, but uh, I find with the, the Mexican people, they're like, meh, quesaras are up. I'm not sure if that's Italian, but either or, but uh, they they are just like, okay, well, it's done, so let's move on. So that, that's what it seems to be like. Everybody's going about their day-to-day life today. Um, it's just, you know, you're kind of looking over your shoulders, like what's going to happen next? Uh, I found out last night on my, my little sojourn out there uh, where I am. I'm only two blocks away from uh, a home that is owned by El Chapo's family. And I was like, oh, boy. Yeah. Um, that's a little uneasy information. But it was a quiet night. All right. And is uh, it- I checked. 
sorry, I, I checked uh, Swoops, uh, the airline that I have friends flying in tomorrow into Mazatlan. And according to their website, that flight is still scheduled to, to depart on time and, and arrive uh, on time in, in Mazatlan. So that's, that's another huge indicator, right? If the airports are open, I mean, everything's gone back to normal. All right. Uh, that is a little too close for comfort, isn't it, though, knowing that house is just a, a couple of homes away. Uh, Daryl, is it somewhere, do you travel there a lot? And I'm curious if you've had any other incidents where safety has been a concern. I've been here, uh, I think, seven times now. This is the longest stay I've had. Many other people have been here for, they come down for six months at a time. The, the lady I was speaking with last night, she's been coming here for 27 years. And she said the 2019, when they took El Chapito, it, it was insane. Hmm. Um, I personally, this is probably the most frantic and it was more, you know, you didn't really know what was going on. You didn't know what to expect. Uh, I ventured out to uh, nearby towns like Alcalite and Concordia, and you come across a roadblock by the uh, the national police, and you're like, okay, do I got to reach for my wallet? Um, but they just did their jobs way on through, and you just go do your touristy stuff. Uh, just last week, or a week before last week, my wife and I ventured out to, uh, it was a zip line expedition and it was about an hour out of town. We ventured out, we got back, no problems. Uh, generally this area has, it, it does have a bit of a name because of El Chapo. Uh, this was kind of his base operation. Same with, uh, I can't remember the fellow's name. He was featured in that uh, Narcos Mexico show on Netflix. His, uh, but his his headquarters were in Mazatlan. So there is a history of cartel uh, business here. And I believe uh, the cartel that's most prominent here is called the New Generation. And they're, they're fairly vicious, just like any Mexican cartel. I certainly wouldn't go down into Los Angeles and find the 13th Street gang and, you know, create havoc with them it's like hey you know bangers whatever uh i you don't draw attention to yourself and that's the key down down here you don't draw attention to yourself if you suspect that there is some cartel activity even the cops you can interact with the uh the police uh the garda national uh if you ask them a question you'd be polite you don't raise their ire uh you just you don't Bring any negative attention to yourself, and you'll be fine. Don't associate with any cartel people. You'll be fine. Chances are you'll live until you leave the country. All right. Well, Daryl, I'm so happy you were able to join us today. What are your plans then as far as uh, you said, again, that it feels much better today? What do you do to make sure that you're safe and to keep informed? Uh, social media. Uh but that's not exactly the, the greatest source of information, but it's better than nothing. Uh, they do post links to uh, sites or stories that the, or information articles that the government puts out. So you just go with that and you monitor your surroundings. You start hearing something weird going on. You basically watch your six, if you know what that means. Yes, I think I think we can we can get to what that means definitely, and it sounds like you have a pretty good handle on what's going on there, Daryl. Thank you so much for joining us to bring us up to date, and I hope you have a very safe and uneventful rest of your time there. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Jill, for the call. It was a pleasure speaking with you. is a Friday afternoon, so what better time to talk about some great restaurants that have been operating and opened within the past few years around Metro Vancouver. These restaurants have something in common as well, and joining us to talk about them is Richard Wolak, editor and publisher at VancouverFoodster.com, also the host of the Van Foodster podcast. Richard, happy Friday to you. 
Happy Friday to you and Happy New Year to you as well. Yes, to you also. Let's get right to this list because there are some great sounding restaurants here. So all of these restaurants are owned by women. So this is what I wanted to profile today is we've got some great women in our community in the restaurant industry and uh, they are full of passion and creativity and have opened up all these restaurants within the past two to three years. Like even like during the pandemic, most of these places have opened up. Uh, so the first one is called Crab Hot Lao. It's a northern Vietnamese restaurant up on Kingsway. And um, something specific there is the owner, her name's Cherry, and she is from a region of northern Vietnam called Haiphong. And that's where she's from. And she moved to Canada eight years ago with a to- totally different idea of a business that she was going to do here in Vancouver. And then over time thought, I miss my food from my home area. I want to open a restaurant to so everybody can taste the food of my region. And that's what she did. And she knew nothing about the restaurant industry at all. And she just went ahead during the pandemic and opened up her restaurant on Kingsway. And to make things fully authentic, she couldn't find some ingredients here. So she airs them in every week, weekly, from this one area of northern Vietnam. So her dishes are exactly like they would be at home. Mm, They sound wonderful. Amazing, passionate, and she's a hard worker. She's in the kitchen. She's cooking. She's teaching everybody how to make the food. Uh, and it's just really, really exciting. So you can find them at 2141 Kingsway. I mean, another spot is called Genki Eki Noodle Bar. It's also recently opened up, up in the Fairview neighborhood on Broadway. Uh, Gigi has opened it up, and same same idea. She has a, she experience in, in, in brewery sales and beer sales, and then she decided to open up a restaurant as well, and uh, she's serving Japanese street food. Uh, so a noodle bar, noodles, different different dishes like that. She's got odin, which is a particular type of food uh, from, that, from the Japanese area. And, and same thing, super passionate, super hardworking, and she just wanted to create something that she had that nobody has seen in that area. So she specifically went to that particular area, which is kind of more like fast food area now, but she's not so much food fast food, but um, it's a great eatery in there, and they're really close to the Canada Line SkyTrain station, so people can check it out. But, you know, same idea. You know, she had moved, up, moved to Canada a while ago and decided she wanted to open her own spot. Um, and then we've got uh, Food by Fanta out in Langley. So this one's really interesting. Uh, Perinia is the owner. She's chef, owner. Uh, she's been in Canada for about say, 20 years, 25 years. She moved here from Thailand. And, and same thing, you know, at the time she had no idea. She was doing something completely different. And somehow she got into, I want to open my own restaurant. She actually opened a Thai restaurant called Banchok D Thai over years ago and has a couple of those. And then um, she's been creating all these new dishes were more of like a... Um, kind of fusion ideas and mixing Thai and Thai inspiration into dishes. So she opened up Food by Fanta right in the heart of the pandemic. I mean, you couldn't find the wor- found the worst time to open, but she has, and she's become an Instagrammer's dream and uh, really, really good food. So, you know, hard work pays off and she's got people coming from all over this Metro Vancouver to a restaurant. So they're right downtown Langley, Fraser Highway at 2052542 Fraser Highway. You can check that one out. And then something completely different is Ofra's Kitchen. She's probably the oldest one. She's actually just uh, turned three years for her business. Uh, She's opened up on Denman Street in the West End, and she is serving up Israeli food, um, vegan, vegetarian. And um, same thing, you know, three years, she survived the pandemic. And I knew from her during the pandemic that things were really difficult down there. They were having, like, lots of different issues, but she was really part of that community, wanted to make things work. So super passionate, super creative. And she's actually a one-woman show. She decided during the pandemic that it was soon too hard to have staff working with her because she didn't want to get any germs or any, anybody getting sick or anything like that. So she decided to do it all herself, and that's what she does. She cooks, and she does preps, and she serves everybody all day long by herself. That's... So <laughs> it's impressive. It's <laughs> really impressive. She's got, movie, she's got all these movie stars going there. I know um, from the cast of Riverdale, a lot of, this, a lot of the actors have been going there for, for eating and stuff. So she's super passionate. She loves having them there. She's at 1088 Denman Street in the West End. And then we've got uh, Nosos Taverna. It's a Greek restaurant out in Kitsilano. Uh, and same thing here. You know, Ellen, she's actually, her family has, she has had been part of the restaurant industry for many years. And she had worked at the various different restaurants the family owns. They own lots of different restaurants, but she decided she wanted to have her own spot. And so she created her own spot, but what she did was she's from a particular island in Greece. So she decided to serve the 
food of the island from Greece. So you're not just having Greek food. You're having it from Evia Island from where she grew up. Hmm. And she serves exactly those dishes that you would find on that island. So that's really interesting, very different. And um, But she's super passionate, same idea. And she created her place, just bright and wonderful. So they're at uh, 3162 West Broadway in Kits. And here's another spot. I don't know if you've been to this one. This is on Commercial Drive. This is called Viet Family. And, and same thing here. I talked to the owner yesterday, and she had, you know, they'd never been in the industry before. They decided during the pandemic that they were going to open something up. They had emigrated from uh, Vietnam to Vancouver about, I think, five or six years ago. And just thought pandemic kind of like, well, you know, we want to serve, we want to serve plant-based food uh, that's Vietnamese from our area. And set out to do that. Commercial Drive opening, you know, right at right, the open in June last year, right in the heart of the pandemic. So saying, you know, many, many issues apparently on Commercial Drive, as she told me. But she owns this with her mother. So her mother and her, are, you know, cooking. Her mother's cooking in the kitchen cooking, and she's out serving everybody. Uh, so they're at uh, 1431 Commercial Drive, and it's all plant-based. So but he's looking for vegan, vegetarian. That's the spot to go. And then in West Vancouver, Modern Pantry. Now, Modern Pantry actually has another spot in, in North Vancouver that had opened up previously. But uh, Kendall had this idea to open up something in West Vancouver. She wanted a larger place where she could produce, where she could do all her baking. So they're baking everything from scratch. It's a full-on cafe restaurant. They've got brunch on the weekends now. And, you know, she. I think that from what she explained to me, that area has been quite, quite difficult. Like West Vancouver has been hard. And, but she's got it. She's like, she's like, I can do it. I can do it. And she's doing it. And she's getting people in. And, you know, a lot of people are helping, like, bring people into her spot because it is, like, a little out of the way. You're on the North Shore. But they're on Marine Drive at uh, 2232 Marine Drive. But they're fully on all, ca- you know, all the coffee stuff, all the baking. Everything's made from scratch. It's a really great place. And lastly, this other spot I want to talk about is called Vanilla Bean Bake Shop. They've just opened in Maple Ridge. I just opened up about two, three weeks ago. And uh, same thing, this was an interesting one. The woman that owns it, her name's Taylor, and she had been in am- worked for the BC Ambulance for many years. And so completely different career. And she decided that, you know, during the pandemic, she, I, guess, I guess their hours were reduced or something like that. And she decided, I'm going to start um, doing some stuff with some farmer's markets. So she started selling some cupcakes at the farmer's markets. They're a huge hit. And kept, she kept selling out. She, she became their number one vendor. And then through that, she ended up winning... Um, Best Bake Shop for 2021 for Maple Ridge, but she didn't actually have a shop. She was just selling these, selling the products from a commissary out to the farmers market. And from that, I guess one of the uh, the malls out there had some empty space in the mall, so they approached her and they said, "Why don't you open up a shop here in our mall, and um, you know you'll you'll get more people in." And that's what she did. So now you've got Vanilla Bean Bake Shop in the Haney Place Mall. And just opened up, and it's there. She's already got filling. I think she's employing ten women already, um, baking and uh, supporting the community every day. Wow! Does, not only does the food sound amazing in all of these places, but the number that opened during the pandemic, like you said, under less than perfect conditions, and and putting out and making a go of it. And I'm still absolutely blown away by Ofra's Kitchen that she does it all herself. Oh yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you just have to see it. She does it all herself, and she remembers her customers. So when you go in, like if you've been in there a couple of times, she knows who you are, and which is. Great. I mean, that's so exciting to see that. And I said, you know, oh, pandemic's kind of, well, winding down. It's not exactly over, but maybe you're going to hire staff. Oh, no, no, no. I've got a system. I can do it all myself. Amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Does she work 18 hours a day? How does she do it? She works a lot. Yeah. I think she's got one day off. And the one day off, she's out shopping for ingredients for her restaurant. Wow. Well, amazing places and so many different neighborhoods that people will be able to check out and get a taste of some absolutely great food. Richard, as always, thank you so much for doing this and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you.